I suppose this is true on most any Sunday, but it's especially true this morning that I need to ask your permission to speak this morning from aspiration and from trying rather than from attainment and expertise. If, uh, if, I'm, at, if I'm at all an expert on peace, uh, I am an expert on striving for it daily and moment by moment. I can't remember, as a number of years ago, I, in some sort of setting, I heard Dallas Willard say that we all needed to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And so I took my calendar and I, I made a little thing and I taped it in the front of my calendar and on every page it had said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And uh, uh, Julie, who some of you know was my assistant at that time, and one day I handed her my calendar to do something and she laughed at me. And I said, what? And she said, well, look at your calendar and look at what this says, you know, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And another one of my sort of favorite uh, little sayings that I carry around in my head is uh, something that I think I got from Richard Foster where he said, um, work a modest day and then leave the rest and the results to God. I just love that. Can we, can you just, doesn't that just sound so wonderful? Work a modest day and leave the rest and the results to God. And again, I just sort of love that. But again, I just... I was walking one day, this is when I lived up in Boise, and at least I was trying, you know, to have a life. So in the afternoons, I would stop and I would go for a walk, but what would happen is whenever I'd be out on a walk, I'd think of something. And then, of course, I didn't have anything to write on, so I would end up calling my assistant. At that time, her name was Vivian. And I remember like it was yesterday, it was several years ago, I was up in Boise, I was walking through our neighborhood, and I was talking on the phone, and she said to me, she said, you know what, Todd? When I grow up, I don't want to be like you. And I just thought something, something is uh, amiss here. So I, if I'm speaking this morning from any kind of expertise, it's the expertise of trial and error. For me personally, and maybe this will help some of you, I've come to understand that for the most part, my hurry is mostly based upon pride, self-importance, uh, a kind of atheism that says, if I don't make this happen, it's not gonna happen. And that is a classic sort of inner atheism that says nothing good is gonna happen here unless I make it happen. And so I've really been on a journey to try to answer this question for a number of years. Can I be busy yet peaceful? And the answer, of course, is yes. And the answer is yes, through the things that we read about in the readings this morning, through our lives being pulled into alignment by this new exodus, this new deliverance that Isaiah and the psalmist was talking about, and then the knowledge of the last things, how things will be ultimately that Peter was talking about. But in the meantime, if you're like me, we tend to hurry from one thing to the next, you know, rationalizing each task as being more imperative than the previous one, multitasking as we go. You know, most of us jumpstart our adrenal systems every morning with caffeine to get going, another one to stay alert in the afternoon to get psyched up before a meeting. Some of us grind our teeth at night worrying about all that we can't get done. Well, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, rushing to find our place in the world really only assists the world in finding its place in us. Rushing around, trying to find our place in the world, really only assists the world in its finding its place in us. 
one of my favorite teachers at Fuller Seminary, Arch Hart, has written a lot on adrenaline addiction. And he wrote a book called uh, Thrilled to Death a couple of years ago. It's a book on anhedonia. Uh, you wouldn't expect to hear that word in Sunday morning, but anhedonia, you know what hedonism is. It's the sort of relentless produce, uh, pursuit of pleasure. Anhedonia is the inability to experience pleasure. And what Arch has been talking about in his writings the last number of years is that most of us have actually destroyed our adrenal systems. And that we've lived so much for so long on adrenaline that lots of us are dealing with all kinds of physical effects because of that. And because for most of us who've lived in the Western world at this particular time, we have pursued so much pleasure that we're actually getting to the place where we can no longer really experience pleasure. So we live in this kind of continual state of urgency and of unsatisfying pleasure seeking. Now that assessment's not to make us feel bad, but it's to introduce this thought that peace is a fruit that only grows on a certain kind of tree. And that tree is not, you know, to do nothing. Well, therefore we could have peace. Like if I could just do nothing, I could have peace. Well, that's not true. Because for some of you, the anxiety that you feel comes from within, not from without. So even if you did nothing, there could still be an inner anxiety. So this peace, it's the fruit of a certain tree, but this tree is called the good life. So just to help you think about this, do you suppose you could have been Mother Teresa in peace? I mean, she doesn't strike me as a particularly hurried person, does she, to you? But could you have woken up every morning and saw the streets of Calcutta in peace? I'm not sure I could have. In fact, I rather doubt it. But see, what this teaches us is that the size of the job, the scope or scale of what we're doing is not what determines our peace. What determines our peace is being somehow connected to this good life that God was trying to deliver his people to. As John Ortberg has written, Jesus was often busy, but he was never hurried. Being busy can just be kind of a temporary outer condition. Being hurried is a sickness of the soul. Because hurry is something more like a posture in one's heart. This is how I can picture Teresa getting up and doing what she did without living in and through this sickness of the soul. So hurry is no small thing. Lots of people, many well-meaning people, cannot succeed even in being kind because they're just too rushed. They're just too busy trying to get things done. Because here's the deal, worry never stands alone. Worry's more like a grape in a cluster. And always around hurry are things like fear and anger and worry. These are hurry's very close associates. And this is why hurry's such a deadly enemy of kindness and of love. What our readings this morning show us is that peace is also a really big deal. Because the biblical notions of shalom in the Old Testament, peace in the New Testament, are really quite big deals. They mean to signify a kind of completeness, a wholeness, a contentedness. 
a quiet, calm, serene heart instead of the agitation and anger and strife that so often lives within us. And this is the good life. Everybody who wants to be a leader, whether you're a monarch or if you're running for the president of the United States or whatever, anybody who wants to be seriously taken as a national or international leader has to answer this question. What is your vision of the good life? And if you think about it, the Democrats have an answer to that. The Republicans have an answer to that. The libertarian independents have an answer to that. Everybody's got an idea of what the good life is. The answer to that question or the vision that arises of the good life from the Bible is this, life in the kingdom of God. Apprenticing yourself to Jesus, making yourself an apprentice of Jesus, and then following him into his kind of life that he announced and demonstrated and embodied as the kingdom of God so that you find yourself in the rule and reign of God. That is the biblical vision of the good life. Because then with that comes this kind of grounded, contented, centeredness in which we can even approach things like ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Work a modest day, leave the rest and the results to God. It's the only way we can even approach that. Well, how are these Advent readings then a path to peace for us this morning? First, if you want to look at your uh, reading from Isaiah in your bulletin, Isaiah is talking here about a time, and this is the first real clue um, to Advent peace, and that is that we live in a time in which we're already off the hook. When God says, comfort my people, speak tenderly to them, proclaim to her that she served her terms, she's paid her dues, now she gets to return home. She gets a new lease on life. Her debts are paid. Her guilt is gone. So what if you got up every morning knowing that you were already off the hook, that you didn't have to squirm and squiggle and make it happen, that you're already off the hook, that you didn't even have to, in a sense, kind of create the atmosphere in which you could find peace, but the atmosphere has already been created and that it is around us every bit as much as Moses heard a voice from a burning bush or Peter saw a vision, that this is around us all the time, that that atmosphere is already there. It doesn't have to be created. What if you're already off the hook? This is the vision of this deliverance that Isaiah is talking about that, of course, our gospel reading tells us that Jesus brought. So the picture here is that God tends his flock like a shepherd, that this strong, almighty, you know, Um, omnipotent God here is seen as a shepherd that he gathers his lambs in his arms he carries them close to his heart and I think what this um, picture is meant to help us see this morning and again I say this first to myself that hurried overactive lives just does not impress God he's just not impressed I don't think when I make that one last phone call even if it's really important right that maybe, maybe God is just not impressed with that. What if the message of Isaiah is this? He's already impressed with you. He is so impressed with you that he organized the world for your deliverance and has organized deliverance for his people over and over and over again so that they would be free rather than having to try to free themselves by maniacal, anxious kinds of behaviors. Well, this is really good news if you're a crushed person. If you're living in exile under the fear of death, this is a really bold declaration about the character of God. And it's given to a demoralized, miserable people who really are in exile. 
I mean, talk about anxiety. What if suddenly you found yourself in a foreign country and you didn't have the right language and you didn't have the right currency and you didn't know what their version of the police department or the IRS was and you didn't know where immigration and you know, those sort of services were. You were just completely out of your world and oppressed by the powers that were there, the social, culture, and political powers. Not only were your norms taken away, but these new things were oppressing you. And the vision of Isaiah is, look, here's your God. See the sovereign Lord, he comes with power. He rules his people with a mighty arm. His strength, the vision here is, is our peace. Because we're, if you look at your passage, we're like the, pe- we're like the grass, all people are like grass. And their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, that's us, and the flowers fail. But the word of our God endures forever. And we saw this last week too. Whenever you see this kind of language, your God, my people, um, the first writers and hearers of this language would have immediately thought covenant. Now I know again that just can sound like a theological word on a Sunday morning, but it's actually very important because what it means is, covenant means on God's side, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you find yourself in exile, even if you find yourself needing deliverance, it's only ever temporary. I will never leave you in the state, we could say, of the soul that you're in now. So anyone who finds themselves in this anxious, fractured kind of soul place, God says, I'll never leave you where you are. The word of the Lord endures forever. So the vision here is that when you're at your most fleeting self, where you're feeling the most vulnerable, God then will be the most powerful, gentle shepherd who guides us to peace, to quiet waters, to comforting us in the presence of hardship and evil. The vision here is that if we're transient, how much more is our anxiety transient? That it's sort of like the petal on the rose. It looks really good, but soon it's gone, and it, you know, it, it fades and wilts and drops off to the ground. But God's word of shalom, God's word of peace, has endured every era of human history. Women and men of every generation have found it. This is what the psalmist means when he said this morning, revive us again, renew our spiritual life. What he's asking for is, would you give us peace? So why is Advent one of the four, or excuse me, peace, one of the four Advent words? Like, why did it rise to that kind of importance? Where once a year, when we're celebrating the coming of Jesus, well, let me back up. Once a year, when we remind ourselves of the prophecies in the Old Testament of his coming and what that would mean, we celebrate that he did come, and we learn to think of his coming again, how is it that peace sits in that story as such an important thing? And it's because what I said at the beginning, it is a mark of the kingdom era. It is a way of signifying the good life that is inaugurated in Jesus, but not yet consummated. That is to say, we live now between the times of where John the Baptist talked about Jesus coming. John the Baptist was what Isaiah prophesied, this voice calling out in the wilderness, preparing straight paths, making the way for Jesus in his first coming. And then Peter, of course, if you wanna look at that in your uh, outline this morning. I mean, it's not really a very fair comparison. I mean, Peter was talking to people who were living under horrible persecution, really horrible persecution. And they had thought that Jesus was coming back any time. 
and he wasn't coming, and he didn't come. And weeks turns into months, and months turned into quarters, and quarters turned into years and decades, and he was still not coming. And so the scoffers were saying, oh, he's not gonna come, you Christians are all crazy. And the really sincere Christians were thinking, he's not really coming, and you know, this is horrible for me. It, it you know, breaks my heart, I can't live with this. So it's not a really very, very fair comparison to maybe compare our pain our sense of being victimized, or our sense maybe of simply being out of control with anxiety, but where I think it is fair is that when you're living in that place, God really can seem to be slow to respond. I'd bet my last dollar that there's a good number of people sitting right here this morning in this little chapel who are wondering, what the heck are you doing, God? Why are you so slow? I read these things about deliverance, We're supposed to be living in this new age in which Jesus has come. The kingdom is here, and you know, this gets into all the business of the hardest stuff of the biggest mysteries of Christianity, is why is there evil, and why does it seem to tarry, and why does sometimes God seem to be slow to respond? But Peter tries to pull them back into, in in a sort of pastoral way, when he says, well, since Jesus could come back at any time, What kind of people should you be? And again, this is another way of talking about what is the good life. And this is an exhortation based in the last things, where Peter's trying to get everybody to look at the very last things and then to ask, how is it that you might set your present life on a course for that? There's an old saying in England that wherever the queen goes, she smells new paint. And that is to say, everybody gets ready for the coming of the queen. It could be the poorest of the poor in some neighborhood in Liverpool, or it could be the richest of the rich in some neighborhood in London. But everybody prepares for the queen's coming. Everybody tidies up, straightens up, puts new paint. They probably even give the dog a bath. Are you with me? Because the queen's coming. And this is the vision that Peter means us to get. When you think that Jesus could come back again, how is it that you should live? And this is why Advent is, again, sorry for the big word, known as sort of a penitential season. Just simply mean means a season in the church year in which it gives us an opportunity to think about our lives, to think about the new heaven and the new earth, and to ask ourselves, what would it mean to pull our lives into alignment with that coming reality? So I was thinking this week, what if I didn't routinely hurry? What if I did not live with the kind of fractured disharmony in my soul? I tried to imagine. What if I had lots of work to do, but no hurry? Could I imagine being late for an appointment without the fractured disharmony? Could I imagine being just sightseeing on vacation even without the need to hurry to the next place to take a picture? House needs to be cleaned for company coming over. No hurry. Trying to get promoted at work. No hurry. Can't seem to make a new friend. No hurry. Seeking help for emotional pain. No hurry. This is the vision of Advent. An exodus. A deliverance from the exile of our own fractured hearts and souls. A main biblical plot line and theme is deliverance. And this morning we think about deliverance from the tyranny 
of everything that's opposite of peace. So we close this morning, maybe this morning, maybe this particular Advent season, you have a need for an exodus, for a deliverance from a fractured disharmony in your own soul. And if so, of course, we turn to Jesus and you might wanna just bow your head now, close your eyes and just hear this as we move into our time of contemplation. Jesus said, peace is what I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. I do not give it as the world does. Do not be worried and upset and do not be afraid. Bad things will happen in this life, but I've told you this so that you might have peace in your hearts. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. One man inspired by Jesus' invitation to an easy yoke devised this little breath prayer that you may wanna sit with just for a couple of moments this morning where he would breathe in, in Christ be easy, and he would breathe out, don't hurry. In Christ be easy, don't hurry. Amen.